How much attention do you pay to the mistakes you make? Well, with today's guest, you will find out why that should be so much more. Are you a leader trying to get more from your business and life? Me too. So join me as I document the conversations, stories, and advice to help you achieve what matters in your life. Welcome to Unbound with me, Chris Dubois. Mark Graben is an author, speaker, consultant, podcaster, and entrepreneur. He works with leaders to improve and sustain performance. Mark's background in engineering and healthcare give him a fresh perspective on culture building, and his insights can be found in his new book, The Mistakes That Make Us. Mark, welcome to Unbound. Hey, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a great episode, and I would love to start by just hearing your origin story. Well, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm getting to be an old guy. I mean, I'm turning 50 in October, so I'm trying to think how far. Um, I uh, give you not the super long version of the story, but, you know, like in a nutshell, I mean, my, my career has taken some directions I wouldn't have expected coming out of college. Uh, I was an industrial engineer. I started my career at General Motors. I thought I was going to have a career in manufacturing and, you know, different leadership roles, um, you know, along the way I went to grad school with that, with that focus. And, you know, I don't know, there was, there was something like lacking. It's not that I was running away from manufacturing. It's probably more that I was like running away from big companies, mm. you know, uh, General Motors. And then after grad school, Dell computer was one tenth the size employee wise, but then, you know, 30,000 people, that's still a huge company. And, um, you know, worked for a software startup over adjusted and went to another huge company, Honeywell, and then I had an opportunity in 2005 to kind of apply some of the things I had been doing and learning into healthcare. So, like, so that was a real kind of a curveball there. Um, so I've, I've worked since then as a, a coach and consultant, um, almost exclusively in healthcare. Like sometimes I still coach and work with companies in other industries, and I enjoy that. Um, I, I'm involved in a software company uh, called Kinexus. It's uh, been around for about 11 years. And there's a great growth story there. But, you know, I think the, the thing I've seen from getting to work in these different environments, like it comes down to people and leadership. People aren't that different in different countries or different professions. Organizational dynamics are pretty similar. And, you know, whether the people, let's say in healthcare will believe it or admit it or not, you know, there, there are things that you can bring in ideas from other industries. A lot of people in healthcare are open to that, but you know that's been kind of like the the career arc that that I wouldn't have expected twenty five years ago. Right. Yeah, that is a uh, quite the journey, and the, the fact that Dell was at ten percent of the uh, current size. Uh, yeah. It, let's. I want to get into uh, really talking about cultivating a culture of of learning and innovation. Yeah. And. Uh, one of the things we had initially talked about was how like the blame game is counterproductive. And now, obviously, I feel like everyone knows this, right? That's like anyone who wants to argue against it, everyone kind of like questions what their motive is. Uh, but even with everyone hearing it, how can you actually get leaders to become aware of this within their organizations? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's connections between like blaming and mistakes, like on an individual level, 
I mean, how often do we say, we hear people all the, all the time say things like some of our best lessons are learned from mistakes. Like I, I, mm-hmm. I don't have polling data, but I'll make up a number. Let's say, I don't know, 90% of Americans believe yeah, that to be true. Mm-hmm. It's far less somehow than like what, what percentage of organizations really have that kind of culture? It's way lower than 90%, right? So how is it? Yeah that you have um, companies that are full of people who might share this individual belief, but then somehow the culture and the leadership has gotten off track from that. Um, this reaction to um, you know, this, 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 this uh, punishment reaction, like it's, it's kind of ingrained and, and maybe sometimes people just don't question that. Like they, 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 as they start their career, they see leaders react that way, they learn, they kind of follow the lead of their yeah. leaders. But like when we step back and challenge and say like, okay, well, if we're punishing somebody for that mistake, like what, what does that really lead to? Um, is our goal to feel better because we've punished somebody or is our goal to have fewer mistakes occurring? Cause then we'll have uh, better business success. Um, and, and so I, I, I don't know if it's so much people share, like have this assumption of, Punishing people reduces the number of mistakes. I think sometimes it's a, it's a deflection. It's 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 not helpful. But by blaming someone else, then I'm not in trouble. So sometimes leaders may blame their employees and deflect to them. You know, I think of like one one kind of famous example from recent years. Um, Wells Fargo. There was this big huge scandal where. Um, lots of customers were getting signed up for accounts that they didn't authorize. Um, and and it, it was driven by people in the branches. They had an incentive system, right? So, and then, and then you know, people are saying, well, I got to hit my incentive or I'm going to be fired. So I'm going to sign these people up for banking, uh, credit card and checking accounts. And, you know, hopefully they don't notice and there might be fees and I can hit my quota. Well, then this this blew up to be, a big, huge scandal. And at some point, the CEO before the CEO, I forget his name, before he lost his job, sort of said something, oh, we have, you know, we've gotten rid of a couple thousand unethical employees. And I'm like, I, come on, like that, that, that kind of widespread blaming. And, and if it were true, and I don't believe it to be true, that they had a couple thousand unethical people working in their banks, that's a systemic problem of a different type. Right. I would hold the CEO accountable for hiring unethical people. You know, you've got a hiring problem. But you know, there, there, there's something kind of ingrained in organizations. Um, it's, it, I think it's not so much that people think punishment really helps because what, what happens is it drives mistakes underground. People get better at hiding mistakes. I don't think it's so much leaders think the punishment route is more effective. That just might be what they were taught or what they were exposed to, or they might somehow think that's necessary because, well, if we don't punish people, then we're giving them permission to make more mistakes. I'm like, I don't think that's how it works either. People, people don't want to make mistakes. They feel bad when they do. And, um, you know, I think punishment just gets us off track from being able to learn and prevent future mistakes. Right. And I think just to build on that, I think the, concept of failing forward mm-hmm. is probably is misunderstood by a lot of people where it's like we, we want to make good mistakes right mistakes yes. where we can learn about things and so I, I think it's probably important to differentiate the a mistake that was like through negligence and like something that 
obviously should have been caught versus, hey, we're growing and we're trying these new things and we're going to keep learning because we haven't tried this before. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'm, it's very how, situational. Yes. Right. Um, yeah. How often do you see that with the, the companies you work with where it's like they actually just need to appreciate that, mm. hey, we're making mistakes, but it's because we're we're doing all these awesome things. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll cite and credit um, Amy Edmondson, a professor from Harvard Business School, who's written a couple of great books about uh, psychological safety and mm-hmm. workplace environment. And, and do people feel safe to admit a mistake? Like that's the first part of being able to then do problem solving and improvement and prevention of the repeat of mistakes. But, you know, Edmondson puts out a framework, you know, with base, I think it's really helpful, like three categories of mistakes. There's one category of like mistakes that we could say, I would add like in a non-judgmental way, mistakes that should never happen, right? These are things like we know how to do the work a certain way and we have procedures and and structures in place. Like when I was growing up, um, when I was a kid in Detroit, one of the um, catastrophic plane crashes of the era um, on takeoff from uh, the Detroit airport, Northwest Airlines, plane crashed and killed all but one person on board, I think, because uh, the pilot's or the co- uh, captain and the, uh, the co-pilot didn't set the flaps to a certain position. The plane couldn't get enough lift, hit a light pole, ended up crashing. Like that's the type of mistake. For one, you can't hide or cover up that mistake, unfortunately. And, and aviation has such a strong culture of learning from not just mistakes that are catastrophic, but from near misses, mm-hmm. right? And, and putting procedures in place Hopefully a plane never crashes again because of that failure mode, if you will. Right. A lot of medication errors and harm that occurs in hospitals, I would probably put in that same category. Like procedurally, these errors are preventable. Then there's kind of a middle ground, uh, the gray area. I'll come back to that. Then there's there's the other end that you were touching on, Chris, like you know, on the on the edges of innovation, you know, what she calls quote unquote intelligent failures, where we can fail forward. Um, I, I try to emphasize, like, let's let's if we're testing an idea, let's do a small test. So like a small, quote unquote, failure, a small right. mistake can prevent larger ones. Like that's part of the, you know, the iterative, um, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, uh, innovation cycle. Um, so if someone like I think of organizations that I've been involved in, like we're going to do an experiment. We're going to spend five hundred dollars on LinkedIn advertising. Like, what's the worst that could happen? We waste $500, right? So at some point, you've got to have like a reasonable hypothesis. And like, we're going to go test this idea. It could be a mistake, but, you know, the company's not going to go out of business. We we tried some sort of innovative approach and we know it could fail and we have to accept that. Otherwise, we're not going to try anything other than the Mm. safest of boring approaches. Right. But then then there's a, a middle ground that, you know, the gray area, I guess, is always uh, the more difficult spot where let's say there's a, a, a mistake that occurred because of like this this new, unique combination of events. It's something that hasn't happened before. We didn't really anticipate it. You know, mm-hmm. and, but I think in, in either of those situations, like even when it's a quote unquote preventable error, we still then have the question of how do we respond? And, and, and I think the the punitive approach, it's, it, it's counterproductive. On some level, it might feel good. Um, like, you know, when, when a, a patient dies because of a medication error, um, you know, society and, and people may want punishment that's more maybe just for the purpose of justice or vengeance. 
but it's not preventing right. future mistakes. Like that particular nurse won't make that mistake again. <laughs> right. um, but a lot of these mistakes are so systemic, yeah. they're going to happen again and punishment just gets in the way. Well, and if anything, keeping that nurse now trains the rest of the organization because they're going to share that every time something similar is coming up. Well, and there's a better opportunity for hospitals to learn from each other. That's something healthcare does not do as well uh, as aviation. And this huge opportunity where there are certain types of mistakes, sort of like, you know, in, in aviation, we don't expect each airline to learn on their own you know, about, for example, setting the flaps properly before takeoff. You know, there's an FAA, there's, there's structures to help encourage learning. Um, and, and healthcare, aviation has an interesting dynamic of like this national reporting system um, of, of a very specifically non-punitive mandatory reporting system. So you can report a near miss or a mistake that didn't lead to any harm. You can't get punished for it because the emphasis is on learning. And I, I wouldn't believe any argument that, you know, um, that that breeds sloppiness or anything. I think it's it's just the opposite. It creates more awareness because people now are, are able to focus on improvement and prevention instead of fearing punishment. In healthcare, there's still this wild range of, of nurses getting fired, losing their license, in some cases being prosecuted and convicted. And then, you know, there was a, a story in the news recently down the road for me in Lexington, Kentucky, a tragedy, like it, it shouldn't happen. Um, a 80 year old patient died because they were given the wrong medication. Multiple nurses made the same mistake. They were arguably understaffed. There were all kinds of factors involved where it seems like this hospital very specifically um, isn't punishing. They're focusing on the learning and the improvement. But my hope would be Every hospital, not just across the U.S., but around the world, should be learning from that mistake. Right. So uh, that just got me thinking, too. Like, I wonder how much. It, so a lot of it placed on the organization, right, yeah. and how the organization handles this. But I also wonder on the the individual, how much goes like unreported because of that. Not necessarily just the fear of of making a mistake, but the shame of yeah. potentially making that mistake. And so they almost hide it rather than sharing it so that people can learn. That I think it's all interconnected. I mean, that's a great point, Chris. It mm -hmm. might not be fear of punishment, but it might be fear of embarrassment and, and, right. and, status and, and shame, lowering. lower status. Um, that's, that's all certainly true. So like one thing that I think is really healthy within the culture at Kinexus as a 40-person a, a software company is an environment that really starts with the CEO of being very open in admitting mistakes. Now he might do that after going through a cycle of feeling bad internally. And like, there's, there's the inner struggle and then there's the leadership struggle, but you know, it, it, it really um, comes down to like, you know, setting an example um, in, in terms of, you know, sharing and admitting mistakes and, and, and focusing then on the constructive path forward, that creates cover for people then to follow his lead in right. terms of um, sharing a mistake for the benefit of, of others learning. You know, this, this mm -hmm. happens quite often in, you know, kind of a weekly all hands call. Nobody's shaming or mocking or teasing people for making a mistake. It's far more likely that someone says, you know what, I've made that mistake before, but, you know, here's what I do to try to prevent right. it. Now, now we're sharing and learning mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, ideally a lot of that happens proactively, but sometimes, um, it's, it's reactive. You know, I think, I think that's, um, I think that's positive. And then I got myself sidetracked from the core of your question though, I think. So I think we're good. Cause I got sidetracked my, too. My uh, and, and, <laughs> no, and you actually, it's a, you, you it's got a me. Friday afternoon. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but on the same thing, you reminded me actually just now of a previous question that I wanted to ask from okay. one of your earlier statements. Yeah. Um, like just specifically looking at the Wells Fargo incident. Yeah. Where CEO, uh, there's, there is a systemic issue within the organization. Yeah. And from the top, they're passing, passing blame off. Yeah. Now versus take CEO you were just talking about who, you know, is having meetings where we're actually fostering growth by right. talking about these mistakes and, and everyone's willing to now take ownership and accept it. Mm-hmm. How, what advice would you have for leaders to kind of set the tone mm-hmm. of the organizations from a taking ownership of mistakes kind of perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it, and, 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 you know, I think, uh, I'll, I'll credit a couple people that I've, I've um, been able to learn from here. I like trying to cite my sources of like, I, I, I'm connecting the dots between people's, you know, between people's ideas. I'm, I'm not trying to make, uh, making the mistake of taking credit for someone else's ideas. But when you think of the reasons why people don't speak up and then we'll come back to what leaders can do about it, this is where I'd get myself back on track. So the fear and shame factor is a big one. You're right. Um, Ethan Burris, who's a, a professor at the business school at University of Texas, Austin, has done great research around why employees choose to not speak up for different reasons, including improvement ideas, pointing out problems. If it's not fear, it's futility. So there's situations where people would say, I'm not afraid to speak up. It's not a fear factor. It's the futility factor of like, I've spoken up before and nothing changes. It doesn't matter. So it right. doesn't matter. Why bother? You know, and so I yeah. think we have to be mindful of, of both of those situations. You know, we need, you know, high levels of psychological safety, but we also need good problem solving to make sure that speaking up doesn't become a right. futile approach. And so then, you know, leaders can try to, you know, uh, I think foster that openness you know, two, two key things, I think I've touched on it before, um, and I'll cite uh, Timothy Clark, the author of another great book called The Four Stages of Psychological Safety. And, and he was kind enough to give uh, an endorsement uh, for my book. But, um, you know, Tim Clark teaches there's really two key things leaders can do. Um, he talks about modeling certain behaviors and then rewarding those behaviors. So it's leading by example. Greg Jacobson, the CEO at Kinexus and other leaders, he's modeling the behavior that we think is positive of admitting a mistake and then doing so in a constructive, you know, kind of problem solving, let's move forward better sort of way. He's modeling that. That kind of gives permission for others to say, well, if it's okay for Greg, and he's encouraging us to do the same, but then here's here's the moment of truth is that when somebody else admits a mistake, Greg has to reward that same behavior. So this is the Tim Clark duo of modeling these behaviors and then rewarding them. And I think that's a different word than saying not punishing. Like rewarding doesn't mean literally like, hey, here's $20, here's a gift card. But it's got to be a positive, like, thank you for sharing that. And let's move forward, right? So it can't end with just saying like, well, it's okay. I know you didn't mean to do it. 
it's fine. And then right. if that's the end of the discussion, you're doomed to repeat the same mistake, perhaps like mm-hmm. being mindful and like, okay, well, um, I clicked in the wrong place and I did, okay, I'll remember, I won't do that again. Like that doesn't last very long. You know, um, we're human, we're, we're, we're fallible, we get distracted, we get tired. There are lots of reasons why human mm-hmm. error is a, just a reality. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to um, not just encourage people to speak up, but you've got to you know, actively kind of reward it. And that rewarding could be just a thank you. Now let's focus on together figuring out how to prevent that from happening right. again. That's very positive. Right. So you just, ugh, man, I love getting in these conversations because I start learning all this stuff that like <laughs> fits into other things that I've learned, like connecting the dots, like you just said, Yeah. where two of the, two of the questions that I'm constantly asking if I'm in almost any scenario for when I'm dealing with people, it's that reptilian brain is always asking, am I safe and do I matter? Mm-hmm. And so when we can talk the the fear and futility, they directly you know correlate yeah. there. And so if you can be working to make your team feel safe and that they matter, you're generally going to be able to avoid a lot of these mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty powerful. Yeah. Uh, but that reptilian brain, so, that's part of our nature, right? When, we, right. when we're scared... Yeah. It's hard to be in um, a, a creative problem-solving kind of mode. So I'm mean, like, one thing I've learned along the way, and, and there's a story about this in the book from um, some things I was involved in at Kinexus, because people do care about their job and the company, and like when someone's made a mistake, they feel they they feel bad. And sometimes mm-hmm. you have to give some space and, and recognize that. And this is something I've tried to get better at mm-hmm. of, of some empathy. Cause like my engineer brain wants to kick right in the problem solving mode. And sometimes people just aren't ready for that. And like, you've got to be a little bit comforting and say, I, I know you didn't mean to do that. I know, I know, you know, and, and to let that sit for a minute, but then Again, that can't be the end of the, the discussion, but you might say, Let, let's right. meet up this afternoon, like soon enough. Like one thing I've learned mm-hmm. about the problem solving side is like the fresher the situation, the more effective your problem solving is, is, is going to be. But if you, mm-hmm. if you rush it, um, people might not be in that place mentally, emotionally to really have their creative thinking back. So I guess, I guess, how could you take a constructive response? And you've given some examples. Yeah. Uh, but to to address the mistakes without necessarily giving permission for them to make like the blatant mistakes. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, and 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 blatant mistake. I mean, that like that's that's a judgment call, or right, or like right, yeah. And 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 a lot of times that's clearer in hindsight of like you know, and even the person involved might admit, well, now I see, I shouldn't have done that, you know. But there's you know, I think back to the question of. Like there's a framework in healthcare, well, actually it comes from aviation. And this is one thing that healthcare has been trying to adopt, um, you know, not, not equally everywhere yet, but this framework called just culture. And it, and it, and it basically kind of gives a framework uh, and even like a flow chart. So as an engineer, I love that, right? Here's an algorithm for thinking through when some sort of mistake occurred, is that a systemic problem where um, you know punishment of, of the individual would be ineffective and, and unjust? Like so, that's where just culture phrase comes from. And what are the situations where individual punishment is appropriate and if not necessary? 
Now, you know, most of the time, I mean, you know, the algorithm goes through and you're like, well, would another nurse in that same situation likely have made the same mistake? Not to pick on nurses, but in a certain scenario, like down in Lexington, like the fact that a couple of different nurses made the same mistake of confusing one bottle with another, that screams systemic error. And, and somebody might look and say, well, that's a blatant mistake. They should have read the bleeping bottle. Like, well, sure, but... If we haven't walked in their shoes as a nurse of, you know, having three ICU patients assigned to you, and that's far from ideal, like one or two patients at a time is normally a full workload and what kind of stress and distraction and things were going on, you know, we're human. So we're not just shrugging our shoulders and saying like, well, it's human error. What can you do? That's where you need good preventive measures. And, and some of those preventive measures weren't working well, like barcode scanning, and then if you don't have a supportive culture where people can say, hey, the barcode scanning and something's not working, if they're left to fend for themselves, well, then they end up in this case working around the system that was meant to prevent the error, which I, I and again, I don't think I'm just being so loosey goosey of you know, like nothing's ever your responsibility, but I'm like that all screams systemic error where the, the, the solution to it for preventing that from happening again, isn't going to fall back on punishment. Now, there are certain circumstances, like for example, um, if somebody is intentionally hurting patients, I mean, there are podcasts about that different type of disgusting situation. Clearly, like when there's intent and when people know they're doing something that is going to harm others, that's when punishment and the justice system, you know, should be involved. But you know, I think there's, there's times, unfortunately, where there's been great injustices of pharmacists or nurses, um, you know, being convicted of things that, you know, I would argue were, were systemic problems. It was kind of like that nurse was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, that, that to me, that's troubling. And then that, that causes all sorts of other problems. Yeah. So, Let's talk about testing different yeah. ideas, uh, which we, we kind of yeah. talked briefly already. Uh, you said something important, I think, as far as how we go about actually testing and using a hypothesis, yeah. right? So we're not just blanket, mm -hmm. like throwing stuff out there and saying, go. Right. We're actually saying, hey, this is what we think is going to happen. So now as mistakes are coming up, they're a little more understood and like almost acceptable, yeah. right? Because we're coming about this. How do you, I mean, I have some ideas for like how I've approached mm -hmm. this in the past, but like, how do you uh, work with teams to basically say, you know, here's how you should set up some of your tests so that we, we do know that we're actually growing and we're learning stuff yeah. from these. Yeah. I mean, there's this middle ground where you're right. I mean, this idea that we can iterate, learn from mistakes and kind of work our way towards discovering a solution over time instead of like knowing the solution right mm -hmm. away. Um, that doesn't give permission to, you know, throw spaghetti against the wall or, you know, make all kinds of right. just reckless um, assumptions or things that haven't been thought through. There's a middle ground where, you know, I think when you have a team where people would share that, you know, the, the, the reasonable hypothesis, if we do this thing, we're likely to get this outcome. Like we, want, we want to be careful about groupthink. You know, I mean, we could still, yeah. as a group, agree that something seems like a good idea, move forward and learn it wasn't right. Yeah. Um, 
But I think sometimes, you know, when you've got more people involved or let's say in a healthy environment, it's a, it's a rhetorical question, um, but think of like as an executive, um, and this may apply to some people listening. Can you remember the last time an employee disagreed with you or said something was a bad idea? Like if you can't remember that, there might be a culture problem. That hasn't happened recently enough. People might be um, just, you know, out of fear or futility, you know, not speaking up. And then the boss might be going forward with uh, a lot of, you know, ideas that turn out to be a mistake. And then they don't want to admit it was a mistake. And like, that doesn't seem like a, a path to success. But, you know, I, I, so I think getting other people's input, um, do we agree that the hypothesis is solid? And then the other strategy is, um, you know, the small test of change. Um, like uh, there's, there's a story in the book, you know, I was coaching a team in the hospital where somebody had an idea that seemed like a reasonably good idea of something they wanted to buy that would, um, they would buy one for every hospital bed and install them on the bed rails and it would be good for the patients and everything. So like it wouldn't have bankrupted the hospital to spend that money and to be wrong. But at the same time, like we want to be effective stewards of the community's funds at this hospital in Iowa. And so the part of the coaching was say, well, instead of buying one for every hospital, because we're assuming that thing they wanted to buy was going to be effective and the right thing to buy, what's a smaller test of change? And like, well, we could start with one unit. Okay. And I kind of pushed and we're talking like, well, I, I'm like, what's the smallest test of change? We're like, all right, well, uh, one, one bed. Now, you know, there, 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 there was a middle ground to be had because you might not want to um, put too much weight into one small one test and one data point, right? So maybe, you know, the, the reality was in the middle. But I think the point um, is, you know, uh, the smaller test of change is less risky. And we can learn from that small test of change. And, and when it was a, you know, a small expense, you're less likely to be embarrassed or double down and how many times in corporate settings have we been pressured into like prove that was a good idea, like that? Okay, um, right. I well, we can torture the data until yeah, it says cost. what we want it to say, or it's a sunk cost that we you know that we we right. aren't willing to just um, throw aside. So I think when it's a smaller test of change, people are more willing, or it's safer to say, "Hey, we tried that and it didn't really work out, but we learned something. Let's uh, let's adjust the plan." I think those mm -hmm. are some helpful tactics. Definitely. So something that I've done that seemed well received uh, was thinking through the actual value of mm -hmm. a mistake and what I was willing to accept for that level of yeah. risk. And so it, it changed per team member, mm -hmm. right? Because their experience levels matter yeah. and stuff. But for someone, I might say, hey, you can make $500 decisions. Like if you think this could cost us $500, like, okay, any more than that, come sure. talk to me. And, you know, 5000 for someone else, 50000 for someone else. and and now we're, we're almost balancing the that risk, and so mistakes just kind of don't happen as yeah. frequently or as large for that individual. Yeah, and I, I think that's reasonable yeah. to have some boundaries or guidelines. Um, I think sometimes a helpful question can be, uh, "What's the worst that can happen?" You know, as we're evaluating mm -hmm. a test, and again, thinking of the situation, um, if the worst the worst that can happen is losing five hundred dollars, fine. If doing some sort of marketing experiment that could really destroy the company's reputation, well, that we, we that's a that's a risk we would be a lot more careful about. 
I want to switch switch okay. base again. Um, but now going back, focus on the leader where I, this is something I have struggled with and it's finding the balance of taking too much ownership mm-hmm. for mistakes versus ensuring your team understands the mistakes that they've made and them taking ownership of that, where I've always, I look at a situation and say, what could mm-hmm. I have done differently? So that we didn't have this outcome. Even if I, there was like, I could have tr- onboarded them better uh-huh. right onto the company a year ago. Um, I'm still willing to mm-hmm. accept that and now look at how I could do it. But at some point I got to make sure I'm going down and talking right. to the team and helping them, them do that. How often do you see that balance as a struggle uh, with leaders you're working with? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's one of these kind of like, you know, yes. And situations where I, I, I you know, agree with your point of maybe it was an onboarding issue, a training issue. We've identified a training gap. Um, that we can um, we can close that gap and onboard people better in the future. I think that's a healthy, constructive kind of system based view. And uh, there's some things that only the CEO or the senior leadership team own and have responsibility for. You know, at the same time, you you can engage and involve you know people um, that were I don't know, shall we say you know involved in the mistake, right? So I mean, I think there's this balance. Um, you know, servant leadership doesn't mean we do it all for them or that we do all the problem solving as the leader. I think there can be some collaboration and some middle ground where the person, um, you know, the, the individual employee can own their action, their decision. Leaders can own some of the systemic factors, but then you can collaborate and say, well, I want, you know, the leader can say, I want your input on how we'd help prevent that. And it might point back to, you know, this question like, well, you never trained me about this and that, and like okay, well, that's an onboarding question. I mean, I, I think it be it can be um, collaborative in a way where it's not, um, you know, paternalistic or maternalistic or like, well, you know, we we have to you're we're you know we're we're gonna um, I don't know you know uh, not trust the employees to help us fix it. Where okay, well, we're the leaders, we have to do it all. Like that doesn't scale well. And you know, um, some of the leaders from Kinexus. You know, we'll talk about how they might have, you know, 15 people reporting to them. They can't micromanage, you know, what those 15 people are doing every day. And they can't necessarily be involved in micromanaging the reaction to every mistake that's made. So I think you find a balance of like, what are you teaching and empowering your team to work on versus what are they escalating up the chain because they do need help? You know, I think I've seen some situations where it goes to an unhelpful extreme where everything's being escalated to the CEO. Like the CEO, even if they work 17 hours a day, which I don't recommend, um, like, you know, the, and, you know, everything going up the chain um, that, that could be driven, you know, by, by fear or people not being equipped with the problem solving skills that they, they could and should develop. Yeah. That makes a, makes a lot of sense. Mark, this has been a great conversation. Thank, uh, thank I feel you. Like I, I have personally gained, gained okay. some great <laughs> insights uh, that I get to take back. And so I'm sure the audience has as well. Uh, I appreciate that. Before we get into some of the closing questions here, I want to recommend that everyone grab a copy of your book, The Mistakes That Make Us, uh, available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Anywhere else that people can grab it? it? It's starting to trickle out. I know it's available through barnesandnoble.com. Uh, it's available in uh, Kindle format. That's the only ebook format right now. Uh, paperback, hardcover, 
audiobook version is going to be available sometime in August. I've already recorded that and it's just waiting for the approval. Um, So depending on when this gets released, it's either already available now or coming soon. But yeah, uh, Amazon's probably the easiest way where people can go Mm -hmm. to mistakesbook.com. That's my website. If they want to order a copy directly from me, they can do that. If they want to do a bulk order for their team, I can hook that up as well. Awesome. Which could be extremely valuable for, (laughs) I mean, I've done company like book clubs where we all just read and it really helps with syncing that that knowledge into the company way faster. Yeah. So I, I hope yeah. people would do that. Um, there is what yeah. there's a one level of bulk order purchase where I'll also come and do like a Q and a session for a book club. Hey. If people there want. So it's uh, even more valuable. Yeah. I hope so. Uh, so separate from your book, what book would you recommend that everybody give a read to? Oh, um, I think I already mentioned uh, the four stages of psychological safety. Uh, Tim Clark. Um, that book is fantastic. Uh, Amy Edmondson's book, uh, The Fearless Organization, is uh, really good. And then I love books. I mean, from my auto industry roots and learning from Toyota, you know, there there are books out mm-hmm. there about Toyota. There's one called Toyota Culture um, that is, uh, I think, really good and really helpful because, you know, it's not about copying the tools and techniques from from Toyota. It's really more about culture, leadership, management systems, mindset, mindsets. Right. So yeah, I would check out the book Toyota culture as well. So there's three, two of them. Awesome. Very similar Toyota culture from a different direction. Awesome. It's a, it's a very selfish question. I asked just so I can keep expanding my, my library. (laughs) How dare you? uh, (laughs) It's okay to be selfish Uh, that way. (laughs) Right. Uh, What's next for you professionally? Well, um, you know, book launch mode, you know, is ongoing. It's uh, it's a marathon, mm-hmm. not a sprint, which is a funny analogy to use because I don't run either of those <laughs> distances or right. speeds. But, um, you know, ongoing book launch mode, um, uh, doing more speaking engagements um, related to the mm-hmm. topics in the book. You know, I think, you know, two of the, the, the key ideas that are um, interconnected and some organizations need more help with one or the other, uh, you know, psychological safety, how do we nurture that and build that in, in a team? Mm-hmm. And then the problem solving piece, how do we help make sure when people okay. speak up something good and constructive and productive comes out of it. So, um, yeah, doing, doing more of that, um, again, you know, not just healthcare organizations, but, um, doing sessions like that with people in other industries. And I'm going to continue podcasting. I'm going to keep doing the my favorite mistake podcast. Chris, I'm going to, not, I'm, gonna, I'm putting you on the spot publicly here, I guess. I would love to have you come on my podcast if you have a favorite yeah. mistake story to share. And we can talk about some of the things you've learned. Yeah, I have lots of mistakes. So, All right. so let's, <laughs> let's sort through them. Yeah, well, yeah, I've learned uh, it's a mistake. to. You don't want anyone to be surprised by that question. It takes you got to think about it, like right. at least over a weekend or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, awesome. So where can people find you? So uh, mistakesbook.com is probably the easiest uh, to spell and to get to for the book. Um, my broader website, markgraben.com, uh, if you can put a link in the show notes, probably uh, G-R-A-B-A-N.com. And um, I can be found on LinkedIn. It's kind of the main social media platform. Those would be, I think, the best places to find me. And I kind of joke around like I'm I'm obnoxiously easy to find online, but probably the worst way to contact me is an Instagram message. 
because I think a couple of years went by. I'm not a heavy Instagram user. I didn't know there was messaging in Instagram. <laughs> I'm like, oh, people have been trying to contact me there. Right. You just got messages sitting not there. Effective. I, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have <laughs> notifications on. I don't know. So please don't try to contact me that way. Noted. Oh, sure. We'll not use Instagram for that. <laughs> I'm getting better. Now, but, uh, awesome. now I know I'm not repeating that mistake. <laughs> right. Well, Mark, thank you for joining me. It's been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the questions and you know your enthusiasm for the topic and look forward to exploring this more um, on, on my show. So thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, I would love a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. And for more information on how to build effective and efficient teams through your leadership, visit leadingforeffect.com. As always, deserve it.